Imagine for a moment, if you will, that you are walking through a very large meadow with mountains on either side and beautiful green grass, peppered by flowers of all different sizes and colors. It's a beautiful spring day, and as you're walking there, you are joined by a geologist. And the geologist begins describing for you what's there. Now we know a geologist is interested in the substrata of the earth's surface. So he begins to talk about the rock formations underneath that meadow. He might talk about the water table and how deep you would have to drill before you would find water. He might tell you about the mountains on each side. But he would describe for you a lot of what you'd not seen and even paid attention to. That would be the perspective of the geologist. And then along beside you comes a botanist. His or her expertise is in the plants that you see and the flowers that are blooming. And so the botanist begins to talk to you about the colors and the hues that you appreciate from the petals of the flowers, the textures that are there, the, the amount of sunshine and waterfall that is needed in order for the plants to flourish in that meadow. And the botanist just opens your mind to things that you never really thought about and more information that you can even comprehend. But yet there's a third person that comes along and joins you in that walk. Not a geologist or a botanist, but a meteorologist. Someone who studies the atmospheric conditions above and talks to you about the weather patterns that are there and exactly what is needed for that meta to have arrived at that state of beauty that you are beholding at that particular moment. Notice that all three of these experts have brought out different things about the same space and area that you see. The geologist underneath the surface of the soil. The botanist talking about the flowers that are so visible. And the meteorologist about what is there weather-wise or what is yet to be or maybe even what has already come through. But each person adds to your appreciation and the depth of your experience. I begin with that illustration this morning because we are studying a a topic of spiritual warfare, and it is the idea that as we walk through life, there are unseen forces that are at work against us or maybe even for us. Things happen to us that we don't think about, and we need someone to open our minds and our eyes to what actually is there and what we're going through and what we're experiencing. My appeal to you is... That every single day you walk with the Lord Jesus. And you allow him to be that expert of life that gives commentary and insight on everyday normal experiences. I want you to open your Bibles with me please to Ephesians chapter 6. That's kind of home base for our scripture. And we've really only uh, preached two sermons on this topic. We've talked about the struggle that's mentioned here in Ephesians 6. Life is a struggle. 
We sized up the enemy last week and we talked about Satan's strategies and the methods that he uses against us. And I simply pointed out that he comes at us to attack our bodies, our minds, and our spirits. But this morning, we're going to begin the second part of this study that's a little more lengthy and detailed as we see what the Apostle Paul tells us to do to actually prepare and defend ourselves when we come against the enemy in everyday life. Look at what he says here in Ephesians 6. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. We're attempting to increase our strength as we do this study together. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That is, it's not our own strength, it's the Lord's strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes, the methodologies, your Bible may say the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavenly places. We could tear apart all of those phrases that he's using there, but he's really talking about the unseen world. Those spirits that are out there that potentially could target us and attack us. And look at what he says. Therefore, because of this, here it is, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The victory is already ours. Standing is the posture of the one who wins. And so he tells us to stand. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Having girded your loins with truth. The Apostle Paul was in prison. We don't know exactly where, maybe Caesarea, maybe Rome. But we know that Paul was just an unusual kind of prisoner because most of the time that he was in jail, there was a Roman guard or centurion who was to stand with him round the clock. So we can imagine what that was like as they changed out their shifts and what they had to listen to as Paul entertained his visitors who might come and visit with him and some of them he gave them a task he said I want to send a letter back to a church I want to send someone a special word of thanks of gratitude and and God would God would just superimpose himself into Paul's minds and the words that came from Paul's heart are immortalized for us in scripture and that's what's happening here And what I want you to see is I think That as Paul begins to bring this letter to the Ephesians, which was circulated among many churches, Paul just glances over at the Roman guard. And and he begins to take note of all the armor that the soldier might be wearing. And what Paul is describing for us are the literal pieces of the armor that would be worn by a soldier in that day. But they are figurative pieces of armor that you and I should put on. Now make the distinction. Paul is looking at a Roman guard and he says, I see figuratively and spiritually what we should wear in order to defend ourselves against the enemy as we live this life and allow Christ to live it through us. 
And the first part of the armor that he makes mention of, my Bible says, gird your loins. I'm calling it the belt of truth. And I do that for posterity's sake. I don't know how comfortable many of us would be if I talked about wearing a girdle. Right? I made mention of that one time and a fellow came up to me and said very politely, Bill, they do make spanks for men. <laughs> so you can include all of us in that if you need to. What is this idea of gird your loins? Well, the Bible is filled with illustrations of that. It said that Abraham girded up his loins, that Isaac girded up his loins. Well, you have to go back in the time that they were living to understand what this is about. Basically, they wore just a, wrong, a long cloak, a wrong, long robe. That was pretty much all that they had. So when they went into hand-to-hand combat, the robe would trip you up. And so they would simply roll it up to about waist high and they would take a belt of some kind, maybe a rope, a piece of leather of some kind. On the Roman soldier, I see it probably about a six to eight inch uh, width of leather that he would wrap around him. And, and he would hold the robe in place so that it would free them up to move quickly so that they would assume the right posture of defense or attack or whatever it was. But it's important to note that Paul says the first thing you have to do is you have to get ready. And when you put on a belt, you're putting on something that's going to hold everything in place. Now what's important to think about is that the belt was used for more than just holding up the robe. We're going to talk about a breastplate, Lord willing, at some point. The, 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 the belt would actually have been used to hold part of the bottom of the breastplate in place we're going to talk about a sword you could see a sheath might be attacked, uh, attached to that belt and so there would be a place for the scabbard for the, for the sword to be uh, sheathed and, and put in place so it could be carried and used effectively and drawn when needed the belt is critical and so he says the first thing we have to do is to make sure that we're putting on the belt of truth that's going to be our focus this morning as we think about what we're actually putting on and what we're wearing. It's not just a belt, it's truth that we're carrying with us as we move through life. I don't intend to get philosophical with you this morning, but we've got to ask the question, what is truth? We're going to do that as we move through these pieces of armor and we're going to see that the sandals of peace is the helmet of salvation. We're going to have to ask the question, what are these terms and these words that Paul is talking about and how do they apply to spiritual warfare? Why is this important? Truth. What is truth? Philosophers and people of faith, by the way, say that man's search for the meaning of life is connected to our desire to know truth. You look up the word truth in the dictionary and this is what it's going to tell you. Truth is that which conforms to reality. What that means is only that which is real and valid is truth. In another place in the dictionary, it says that truth is the verification 
of an absolute. Validity, follow me, of an immutable fact. Something that can be proven over and over and over again and that is true for everybody, everywhere, who's ever lived or will live, this is truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, I've come that you might know truth. And if you know what is true, truth will set you free. John 14, Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples and he says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Remember? Jesus is before Pilate, just before he is crucified. He's being tried there. Pilate begins to quiz him and ask him, who are you? Where did you come from? And I want to know, why do these people hate you so much? And Jesus just keeps pointing him back and says, why don't you ask the people who've heard me? They know who I am. They know what I've taught. Pilate just pressed him on again and says, I need to know. And Jesus says, listen to this carefully. He says, I have come to bear witness to the truth. Two words for truth in the Bible. One means to speak what is true. Another word means to embody truth. To live out what is true in your own heart and your own soul and your own life. And what you believe to be the reality of how life is to be lived. What you and I believe to be an indisputable Fact, things that are not up for debate. That is truth. You see, this is important, folks, because the opposite of truth is what? Falsehood. It is a lie. It's a lie. We need to ask that. I know about a boy who was, I don't know, three or four years old. His mother had caught him in a lie, and so she was teaching him a lesson about telling the truth, about telling lies. And so she would insist that he tell her, what, is a, what does it mean to tell the truth? What is a lie? What is a lie? What is a lie? She would just drill it into him all day long at the supper table. Dad had come home from work. He was glaring at his son across the table, just mind, I know what you did, and I know your mother's trying to teach you a lesson. Son, what is a lie? The little boy said, it's when you tell something that's not true. And it's a very present help in times of trouble. <laughs> See, so many times we think, well, I, I got I to gotta bend it just a little bit, you know, just to, just to make sure I can survive this moment in time. Has anybody ever said that the truth has a way of becoming known? Truth. You see, Jesus came to shed light on indisputable fact. He, he came to shed light on what is the reality about life. And it's all related to his role as Messiah and an understanding of who he is. And the first thing that Paul is telling us to do is when you know that you get up in the morning and you go out in the life, you're going to face 
spiritual troubled water. You're going to struggle from time to time, maybe not every day, and some days are worse than others, but when you find yourself in the middle of that struggle, the first thing you need to do is to say, I'm wearing the belt of truth. I know what is right. I know what is wrong. I am basing my life on that which is whole and not in part. You see, the word truth has about it this idea of integrity. And the word integrity comes from the word integer. That's a math term. And the word integer means a whole number. And that which is not a whole number is what? A fraction. You don't build your life on that which is fractured. You build your life on that which is solid and strong. And that's the Lord Jesus. You see, Satan wants to lie to us. He wants to... He wants to fabricate things. He wants to, he wants to describe things for us that intimidate us and cause us to believe that this is a reality of the way things are. But our lives must be lived out on the basis of who we are in light of who Jesus Christ is. And we keep going back to his role as Messiah, as Savior. What did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come to destroy the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. I came to make sure that every I is dotted, every T is crossed, and every part of the law is fulfilled. He was basically saying that in and through Him, man could meet the demands of the Old Testament. And that is the truth of who we are in light of who He is. I just, I just want to leave you with four immutable truths this morning. Can I do that? Four. This is going to take long. Just four immutable truths. The first thing I want you to know is that this has been true for every person who's ever lived, every person who is living, every person who will, will live. You and I are made in the image of God. Now, that, 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 that's probably not, you know, just an overwhelming truth for us, but we have to start there in order for you to see how these other truths build on that one truth. What does that mean? The Bible says that when God created Adam from the dust of the earth, he breathed into him the ruach, the breath of God. And Adam became, watch this now, a living soul. No other creature that God created is that said about but for Adam and Eve and perpetually every human being that would live after them, they are made in the image of God as a living, breathing soul. You know what that means? That means that when this earthly life ends, your soul continues. And you are going to spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. The Bible almost has more to say about hell than it does about heaven. But we need to understand that that is how God has made us. And as we live our lives, we live our lives with that truth. That truth of who we are made in His image. Knowing that one day I'm not going to live forever on this earth. I'm going to die. That is the potential truth of who we are. But when we die, we can potentially live forever with Him. Or we can live without Him. And living without Him is not life at all, right? The word that the Bible uses, the word is perish. When I think of the word perish, I think about a banana that sits on our counter and it gets brown and mushy and 
squishy and I'll stop there. And uh, it just, it goes away. And that is a human soul without God that just withers up and diminishes away. But a life with God, with Christ, can live forever and ever and ever. And it is an indescribable thing for us to think about living eternally with God in heaven. You and I are made in the image of God. Here's a mutable truth, number two. It's not up for debate. Nobody can ever disprove this. Nobody can love you like God loves you. Now, you are surrounded by people who love you. They may not say it. They may not express it. <laughs> I had someone ask me one time, said, uh, Bill, did you know you were loved growing up? I said, well, heavens, yes. Why would you even ask that? They said, well, I met your mother. <laughs> she's, she's just not affectionate. I mean, Miss Sheffield, I'll tell her I said that. Okay, see you. But that's the way she was raised. You may not have been raised by someone who tells you often that they love you, but they do. You're surrounded by a church family that loves you. I tell students in school all the time, hey, I love you. I love you. I care about you. I want to know where you're going. I want to know where you're headed. I want you to... And, so I, and for so many of them, they, they walk away laughing and giggling because they think I'm insincere. But most of them, I think, know that I do, in fact, care about them. But you take all the love of every individual that you can ever name or count that potentially might have some sense of affection or concern about you and love for you, add all of that up and won't even compare to how much God loves you and how much God wants you to know that he loves you. That's truth number two. Truth number three, in the same way that God loves you more than anybody else will ever love you, God has done more for you than anybody else will ever do for you. You say, what has God done for me? Well, the first thing he did is he gave you breath. He gave you life. You're here. But more than that, he sent Jesus to die for you. He's died for us on the cross. And if I understand what Paul is teaching us in this passage about putting on the belt of truth, we're living our lives based on the fact that Jesus died for us. And if we trust him as our Savior... We can walk through any and every experience of life with him like the geologist and the botanist and the meteorologist. And we have Jesus who can give commentary, a narrative, an explanation, an understanding of what you're going through and how you're going to go through it and how you're going to survive it and what your life and witness will be like once you get on the other side of that experience. Just using the context of spiritual combat and at force against, at work against the evil force, you see, you've already won. All you have to do is stand firm. All you have to do is understand that the victory is yours and let God fight the battle in and through your own life. He's already done for you more than anybody else will ever do for you. But the fourth and last thing that I want you to think about is that in order for you to know the victory that I'm describing, that I'm talking about, and this is an indisputable truth, my life is built on it, and many others here this morning already is, that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, He gives you, He puts at your disposal, He gives you every single resource that you need 
To not just survive in life, but to thrive, to flourish. To not just get up in the morning and say, okay, I woke up another morning, but for you to actually enjoy the day and the experience and to know that He is loving you and providing for you every single moment of every single day. My challenge to you this morning is, have you done that? Have you given your life to Christ? In the Bible, there's a word that we don't like to use as Baptists because we think it, ta it talks too much about predestination. It's the word elect. Those whom God has elected. elected. We have this idea that, that God chooses who He's going to save and who He's not going to save. God doesn't choose that. God's desire is that every person come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But in the foreknowledge of God, he knows who's going to accept Jesus and who's not. And watch this. Every person who gets nominated gets elected. <laughs> every person who gets nominated gets elected. Uh, Riley who was baptized this morning, two Sundays ago, came forward. He didn't use these words. I'm using these words. He said, I got nominated. And God said, and I elect you, Riley. I'll save you. I'll make you a member of my family. And he did that. And he'll do it for you. He did it for me. He's done it for many of us. Live your life on these immutable truths this week. you're made in the image of God that God loves you more than anybody else that God's done more for you than anybody else and that God will save you as you trust Jesus as your Savior would you stand with me this morning Father I thank you for your love for us and your willingness to reveal that to us through this scripture that way. I know of no other greater message that needs to be shared more consistently than just how much you love us and care for us. Father, thank you for Jesus and for the way that he came to bear witness to the truth. I pray that we would allow you to live our lives in us, for us, and through us. And we know that that's not an end of itself, but it's to bring glory to you. But Lord, it's also as a witness to the world. And Father, this week, I pray that we would be your witnesses. Should there be any person here this morning, Father, who needs to make public a commitment to Christ, give them the freedom to come forward during this invitation and say yes to Jesus. May they say like Riley said, I want to follow him in baptism and church membership. Ask this church to help me grow in my faith. Father, if there are Christians here today looking for a church home, because your spirit would lead them, let them come to unite with our church family because we receive members in a variety of ways. Use us as you see fit, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.